I'm Christian Waller and welcome to the latest episode of Calling All Stations. And today we're doing a special from Cambridge because it illustrates many of the problems faced by transport in urban areas across Britain. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamus, who has arrived here using an almost unique form of transport, Mark. Yes, hello Christian. It was a great pleasure to arrive in Cambridge today using, for me, the first time, the Cambridgeshire Guided Busway, which is one of very few examples of this kind of technology that you'll find in Great Britain. Although it's been open since 2011, as I say, it was the first time I'd had occasion to use it. And I have to say, I was pretty impressed by the experience. Um, Travelling in from St Ives, which is to the northwest of the city of Cambridge, on the busway, which of course enables the buses, which to all intents and purposes look like conventional vehicles, to operate using a guided system on a, a, a kind of concrete track with um, guide wheels that enable the uh, driver to achieve much higher levels of uh, running speed than you would typically see for local bus services. And of course, it's completely segregated from other road traffic, apart from a few places where it crosses uh, roads and there are traffic lights and other safety measures. So, so it's halfway place. between a, a, a tram and a bus? It's kind of, yeah, it's, uh. it's an interesting kind of intermediate technology. Um, and of course, this particular busway was controversial over many years before it opened because it used a, an old railway alignment. And, and for, for, for decades, there have been campaigns to reopen the railway between Cambridge and St Ives. In fact, if the route hadn't been converted to the busway, I'm sure it would now be featuring in one of those reopening campaigns, one of those um, beaching. Uh, those re- beaching reversals, which um, the UK government has encouraged local uh, authorities and, and other stakeholders to bid for. But now it's a kind of concrete railway. Um, you can see it was a railway by the extent to which it's very straight um, uh, and where there are curves, they tend to be long sweeping curves. And you can even see the former railway stations in some cases that are still in situ, but used for other purposes. Um, Interestingly, also the experience is a bit different from a conventional bus in that the the stops are a long way apart. Uh, And in fact, the stops have the characteristics more of a, a railway station in some respects or a railway halt anyway with an elevated platform and uh, waiting areas. But it is an an impressive experience. I did take a short uh, video uh, of the journey in that I'll post onto the Calling All Stations Twitter uh, so that um, if you haven't had the chance to see this for yourself, you can get something of the experience. But it's it's certainly an innovation as far as public transport in, in Britain is concerned. I, I gather there's a, there's a cycleway next to it as well. Yes, there is. They, they used, um, uh, the, the, as far as I could see, it was the, for the whole of the route, there was a, a wide dedicated um, a cycleway which was also being used by 
pedestrians and uh, and wheelchair users as well. I noticed as as I came through. Oh, was it a comfortable experience? Was it? Did it feel more like a train than a bus? Or it, it, it could you read a book? It certainly sort of? it was it was pretty smooth. Um, it was a fairly noisy because it was a a, di- a conventional diesel bus. Um, but the, um, the, 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 the speed and the acceleration were notable. Also, it's clear that Stagecoach have invested in a new fleet uh, of vehicles for this uh, purpose. So they were leather-seated vehicles um, and uh, they, uh, with, uh, with uh, sort of charging points for phones and, and so on. So it was a, a generally pretty comfortable experience. And it was... Um, uh, no, you know, notably, you know, higher quality, I think, than than you would typically expect um, uh, as a, as a sort of travel experience um, from many um, urban and local bus routes. So interestingly, you can compare directly because before the bus enters the busway, it does actually operate as a conventional bus on the road network with the stops at the at the typical distances that you have for. For bus stops, so you get the totality of the of the kind of bus experience by using this particular route. And this was just for two pounds. It was thanks to the present uh, capped fare scheme in England. Uh, this was a journey end to end, actually, of an hour and a quarter for an amazing just two pounds. And and perhaps for that reason, even though I was travelling in the middle of the day, there was uh, uh, encouragingly high level of patronage, shall we say on the bus and it's a high frequency service as well I think on the particular route I was using it operates roughly every 20 minutes and there are other routes that feed into the the busway as well so given what we're going to talk about with the uh, congestion problems of Cambridge this was as I say an interesting and innovative way to address some of those challenges. Right, well I arrived um, in my usual way by train and then bike um, and uh, cycled about uh, four miles to uh, the science park where we are now. Um, and I, I must say it was not, not the most fantastic experience. There, there, there was a, a cycle route for, for much of it. Uh, I actually even went through a park which has some cows in it. It was very strange. I'm not sure what the cows were doing there. Um, but it, it's uh, true to say that Cambridge suffers from... Uh, what many urban areas suffer from, and that's you know too many cars in a in a city that is not built for it, um, and they've been trying to tackle this for years. I mean, there's been kind of all sorts of of schemes, um, and indeed there has just been uh, a big report published uh, by the Greater Cambridge Partnership into uh, plans that would uh, hopefully remedy the congestion. And uh, it really goes back to uh, you know, five or six years. There was initially uh, a, a public consultation um, and then there was uh, some type of uh, initial uh, report and uh, then there was more consultation. Um, and one of the complexities, which I think you understand uh, as a resident of Peter or better than me, is that there's a greater Cambridge partnership. There is Cambridgeshire and then there is Cambridge City Council, is that right? I think uh, in some ways the, the, the people of this part of the country are, are the most over-governed <laughs> of anywhere in, in the UK because much of Cambridgeshire still has two-tier 
local authorities with district councils and a county council. Then there's the unitary authority of Peterborough, which is bolted onto that. And then sitting over all of that as a combined authority, there is a, a, a directly elected Metro Mayor. And not a lot of people realise that we have a Metro Mayor in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. People have heard of um, Andy Burnham uh, in uh, Greater Manchester, of course, and, and, some of the, and many of the other Metro Mayors in England. But uh, in the case of Cambridgeshire, we have one of our own. We now have a second Metro Mayor elected for this uh, city region. And, um, and, both a change, a change and a change of political control. So the first, the first one was uh, was conservative. The second one is Labour. But interestingly, uh, whatever the pro whatever the political complexion of the of the leadership, the um, uh, the, the problems remain. So yes, uh, and uh, the body charged with trying to uh, deal with this is the top one there. I think the greater. Uh, Cambridge uh, partnership and it does have an allocation of uh, uh, investment funds to uh, tackle this and it's produced this uh, making connections uh, report uh, a few months ago and this now it's just published the results of a consultation on this report and uh, whereas the previous mayor initially uh, wanted to have uh, some sort of tram system through the, the middle of Cambridge uh, and this was highly controversial but he, he kind of uh, uh, pushed this uh, quite strongly and uh, it, it uh, came to, to nothing after quite a lot of money was spent on, on this scheme and so the idea was they went back to uh, getting another report I mean honestly Mark this is a a, a 217 page report you know you can imagine all done by private consultants you can imagine uh, what that cost and and this is into it's come up with a, a, a series of proposals and at the core proposal is that that have much more frequent buses um, uh, that have measures for walking and cycling although they haven't actually really specified uh, precisely what and to pay for this they would have a congestion zone in the middle, as per London, uh, which would then, that the money for that, or a lot of money for that, would go to paying for uh, the improved bus services. And uh, these are always controversial, aren't they? Congestion charges. Uh, um, absolutely. And of course, so what has the consultation come up with? Well, people really like the increased frequencies buses. Some, some 60 or 70% of people support the increased uh, uh, bus provision. And so they like that idea, even though uh, the report finds that not many people use buses in Cambridge because it, it doesn't have a very good uh, network. It's certainly the, uh, far lower than the number of people cycling. And, and uh, something like 60% of people uh, use a private car, 60% of people uh, uh, cycle at some point uh, during the week and only about 10% use a bus. So it's it's really kind of a, a very marginal form of transport. Nevertheless, they like this idea. There is, of course, one problem, which is that uh, a majority of people, only only 34%, so, uh, sorry, a minority of people, only 34% support the idea of a, a congestion charge, which was only going to be set at £5. Uh, 
um, and uh, double that for vans. And there was a possibility of £50 for lorries, although that does seem a bit excessive. Um, and uh, there is a lot of subsequent debate about this. And now they're coming up with a variety of proposals. One, one issue is that it covers Edinburgh's hospital and the other hospitals in the area and people are kind of objecting uh, to that idea that you have to pay to, to go into the uh, go towards the hospital by car um, so they've come up with a, a variety of proposals about either letting certain people off uh, who might you know and then you have exemptions but then you know how many exemptions do you have how do you enforce them and so on um, or, uh, you know, you might have a lower charge than the five pounds and so on. So there's now a big uh, debate about this, but it's already cost uh, some political casualty, which is that the, the lead of the Labour group in Cambridge uh, has gone and she's been, been replaced because, according to the new leader, um, you know, we have to listen to people, uh, what they said about these uh, this congestion charge idea. And, you know, I think that's a real shame, actually, Mark, because at the end of the day, a city like Cambridge, which is, you know, uh, has a very heavy cycling use already, lots, lots of people walking, a, a, a town centre where that is sort of semi-pedestrianised already, sure, you know, has a university, has thousands of students, has a very clear congestion problem in the middle, surely Cambridge should be a place where we would be able to introduce this sort of thing without too much trouble. But no, they're going to go out for more consultation, more problem, and nothing, as the local paper says, is going to happen for quite a while. It does seem that every aspect of, of solving the transport issues here is fraught with political risk and also fraught with delay, because, of course, Cambridge will eventually benefit from the East-West Railway. Uh, which is a UK government uh, project to eventually restore a direct link to Oxford through Bedford and Milton Keynes. A link which many of our listeners will know did exist historically until the 1960s. The not by, not killed line. by beaching though. No. Apparently it was not, it was, it was the government which killed it rather than beaching. It was a, it was a post-beaching yes. closure and a, and a, uh, uh, one that uh, continues in a way to be a scar on the transport network. Just because they were building Milton Keynes and creating Milton Keynes, they decided they to shut take the railway. It. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So uh, yeah, a good example of uh, of, of joined up uh, political thinking. But there, there is controversy, of course, of, around the alignment for the, uh, the part of the East West Railway, which has to be in effect built from scratch on a completely new route between Bedford and Cambridge. Very controversial, uh, and some recommendations on a proposed alignment were published only a few weeks ago. But uh, will this lead to yet another round of consultation and prevarication? We will see. But there's much, there's much fuss about this because uh, uh, people, the 65 homes have to be demolished apparently. Um, uh, for this, which is not an enormous amount for a very important piece of infrastructure, but that's caused a lot of fuss. Uh, it hits Bedford Town Centre quite dramatically, it hits, it hits it? Bedford Town Centre, and then there's also worries that it's going to carry freight. So, yes, of course it's going to carry freight, uh, you know, because it might well be a route onto Felixstowe and the like. But, uh, you know, people are always, I mean, people are always coming up with, you know, we'd like to see more. Uh, freight on trains. You know, they always say that. 
And yet, of course, if it's going to go past their backyard, they really don't want to see it. So, I mean, there's, there's these issues. And I just, I mean, just to sum up this whole thing, I just think it's all part of the fact that we don't have a coherent national strategy around uh, this issue, around decarbonisation, about the importance of transport, about any of it. You know, we've never really had a proper kind of transport policy. Instead, we, you know, react to all sorts of kind of NIMBY considerations uh, and, and politicians cower in the face of consultations. There are moments in history where you recall exactly where you were and what you were doing. Um, but sometimes this leads to completely unexpected intersections. And I remember staying up all night in 2016, watching the results of the US presidential election coming in, when we were agog, I think it's fair to say, at the election of uh, President Donald J. Trump. But the very same morning, uh, the, the, the second story in the headlines, and one of enormous domestic and, and local interest, related to a, an accident that had taken place on the Croydon tram system. Now you, Christian, have followed this story very closely over the last six and a half years. Absolutely. I mean, oddly, of course, uh, there was a third thing happening to me at that, that, that point in time, which was that I was standing in the Richmond by-election um, as, a, as a, the Labour Party candidate. And um, uh, it, it ended, um, of course, uh, without me winning or getting anywhere close to winning. Uh, but um, it, it was very poignant because I was also at the same time being asked to comment on this uh, uh, Croydon uh, tram crash in which uh, seven people were killed. Um, and we've just had the verdict of, uh, it's taken six and a half years, the verdict uh, again of, of the driver's trial uh, who was being charged with various health and safety offences um, in relation to the crash uh, in which seven people died. Um, and uh, he's been acquitted. Um, meanwhile, Transport for London and uh, the TOL, which is the uh, first group subsidiary which operated the uh, the tram uh, have actually both admitted liability under health and safety legislation and so on and so they will obviously be, be fined in that respect but the driver was acquitted and I've just written a, a piece for actually inside Croydon uh, which is a website um, but I've also written uh, various articles over the years about this uh, for Rail Magazine and elsewhere and I've actually cheered the fact that the driver was uh, acquitted. Now, one might want to ask why, but uh, you know, when you've looked at this accident uh, uh, in detail, you see that um, it, it was an organisational, structural issue uh, that resulted in uh, the disaster, uh, not uh, a, a simple mistake by the driver. So the driver clearly did make a mistake, but he was put in a very difficult position. Uh, you know, this was uh, an odd bit of railway. So, so what were the underlying causes then for the accident? Well, the underlying causes, there were two really. Um, one is that this is a very difficult track, right? It goes through three tunnels where the speed limit was 80 kilometres an hour, 50, 50 miles an hour. And then suddenly it then reduces to 
20 kilometers an hour for what is a 90 degree bend, right? Which, and uh, the driver was clearly, he, he was traveling actually at 70 kilometers an hour and uh, the tram as a result overturned. But there were very few warning signs about this. And oddly enough, some of the warning signs had been taken down. The tunnels were badly lit and dark. So he, the driver said he was uh, disoriented. Um, and he was put on what is a dangerous piece of railway. There had been other examples of overspeeding, which were not quite as uh, high speed and therefore it didn't result in accidents. But uh, the authorities, uh, the TOL in particular, should have keep, kept an eye on this part of the track and instituted better warning signs, maybe even some sort of trip device, or you know, as there is on the national railway. Oddly enough, trams are not considered like the railway. They don't have the same uh, legislation. So you don't need advanced warning systems about uh, things like this when you have a speed limit. So that's, that's one issue. The second issue is driver fatigue. There are many instances of drivers uh, getting tired uh, and, and the shift pattern was uh, almost kind of uh, resulted in more cases of driver fatigue than it should have done because it wasn't a good uh, structure for the shift system. Um, and several drivers have been sacked as a result of uh, falling asleep while they're driving the track rather than uh, the company looking at the situation and saying why was uh, were drivers falling asleep? What was the problem here? What should we deal with it? They just sacked the drivers, and again, that's blaming the driver. So I'm very pleased that uh, the, the 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 driver uh, was acquitted, and in particular, the investigations have been rather poor. There's been two key investigations, which was first of all there was the railway accident investigation branch, and somehow. Uh, one would have thought that this would have, you know, resulted in a thorough. Just uh, tell us who they are, Christian. Exposition. They are the Rail Accident Investigation Board, created about 15 years ago, uh, looks at accidents and uh, we, tries to ascertain what happened without necessarily allocating blame. So it's not about kind of uh, saying so, so and so was at fault, so and so was at fault. What it does is try to explain the causes and to learn the lessons from it. But in this case, it was a completely faulty investigation because Transport for London had failed to submit an audit report about driver fatigue on this particular uh, uh, stretch of, tra of, of uh, on, this, on, this, on the Croydon Tramlink. And uh, it had admitted, omitted to send this report into the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. And as a result, and maybe partly because of that, but partly because I think of the prejudices of the RAIB, they had not properly investigated this issue of driver fatigue. And they had to actually, once they, this report was uncovered by campaigners for the bereaved, and uh, a guy called Michael Liebricht, who was uh, an assembly member who was actually uh, head of uh, a committee on safety at the, uh, at the uh, GLA, he uh, uncovered this audit report and put it into the RAIB and they had to then kind of add uh, an addendum to their initial report. So there was a lot of failings in the investigation. And then the, so the second investigation was in the inquest. But the inquest then 
took this ruling called the Norfolk ruling, which is that it said we can't investigate matters that have already been investigated by the RAIB. And so since the RAIB uh, inquiry was inadequate, uh, the coroner's decision not to investigate matters that it had already partially considered meant that certainly the, the bereaved families are still angry about uh, what went on and of course uh, the, the failure to come up with answers to you know exactly how this happened uh, you know what were the real contributory factors and uh, you know how do we ensure that this doesn't happen again so it's a very unsatisfactory kind of outcome have protocols been put in place to learn the lessons from the underlying cause they've certainly uh, improved the driver fatigue issue the coin uh, trembling they've uh, also uh, put remedial uh, taken remedial action about this very uh, sharp curve and so on but I'm not sure that the overall bigger organisational issues have been uh, properly addressed uh, to ensure that uh, something something like this doesn't happen again. So there's still kind of uh, concerns about it, um, and uh, it does highlight some failings in how we actually uh, look at these uh, sorts of accidents. And of course, there is a, a, a long and perhaps ignoble tradition of blaming the workers for accidents on transport systems, isn't there? Uh, absolutely, and, and there's, there's a, a long railway history of that. I mean, stretching back literally uh, to the 19th century, where uh, it was always easier to blame an individual driver, an individual signal uh, person or whatever, uh, for having caused a particular disaster when uh, people were actually uh, put in a position where one mistake could lead to uh, a very major disaster. And over the years, the lessons for railways have been learned. So, I mean, we do have a very good safety record now uh, on the railways with, uh, as you know, uh, since, since uh, uh, Potter's Bar in 2002, there's only been uh, two accidents, so one caused by 47 points uh, in uh, Cumbria and the other in Scotland, which was caused uh, by a landslide in which people have uh, been killed and, and a total of six people have died in uh, railway accidents since 2002. That is an amazing record when viewed against the history when, you know, even when you and I kind of were setting out in our work in, in, in uh, writing or working in the railways uh, in the 1990s, uh, there were still quite frequent accidents and certainly in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, there were ac fatal accidents uh, virtually every year. So that has greatly improved, uh, but uh, Croydon-Tramlink disaster still highlights that there are fa procedural failings which uh, I think merit further investigation. And I think that there should be uh, another look at the whole uh, process by which uh, the results came about. And now this driver has been acquitted, and that hopefully is one of the last instances where you know, the book will be thrown at an individual rather than at uh, the organisations responsible for putting people in a, in a risky situation. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, uh, it comes from Motor Trade News, not a magazine I often look at, but come across this article which asks, 
could public transport passes ease congestion? And they uh, did a survey uh, of motorists in which they found that one in five, that's 20% of motorists, would actually potentially use public transport if they had the sort of pass that is available in Germany. Now you might recollect, we've talked about this before, in Germany for the princely sum of 49 euros you can use kind of most train services and all bus and tram services uh, just for the monthly price of 49 euros. And uh, you know, that's something that it would take a lot to get introduced here because of all the different providers and all the complexities of our transport system. But you know what, in Germany there is also equally a quite complicated system of public and private operators, all sorts of local authorities and stuff. And they've just basically said 49 euros buys you a transport pass. So if one in five motorists would consider that, uh, can you imagine how many cars might taken off, be taken off the road and the sort of problems that I've been talking about here in Cambridge might well be alleviated by such a system. But, you know, I can't see it happening soon. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmer is a Cogitamas Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at allstationspod.com.